You're listening to Self Propelled, a podcast that explores the process of turning ideas into reality and the secrets behind keeping up momentum once you've started. I'm Dave Cornthwaite, and for 15 years I've experimented my way through a series of personal and social adventures, including Expedition 1000, a self-set mission to complete 25 different non-motorized journeys, each over 1,000 miles. I also founded the Yes Tribe, an optimistic community bonded by the idea of making the most of their time and potential, often by saying yes more. Join me for stories and conversations with self-starters, athletes and entrepreneurs who need nothing more than a good idea to add a little fuel to that pilot light burning deep within us all. I am excited to release this final episode of Season 1 of Self Propelled, a second interview with the wonderful Sarah Uten, focusing in on her epic four-year journey around the world by bicycle, kayak and rowing boat. This one has been some time in coming, and I encourage you to be patient with the occasional spots of background noise. This interview was conducted over the phone on a particularly hot and noisy day way back in the summer. So I was sat on the top deck of a double-decker bus, and Sarah was a couple of hundred miles away on a farm. And for some reason, aeroplanes, buzzing insects, farm animals, and local tractors decided to make themselves heard and... uh, were basically just pesky at different points. I'm sure you'll agree though, Sarah's stories are very much worth hearing. Thanks so much for, for giving us another hour of your time. You are welcome. Thank you for agreeing to deliver a ton of chocolate this week. Very grateful. <laughs> you'll absolutely love. I was just invited to to give a talk to a virtual Zoom call to the team at Cadbury's and they're going to pay me in chocolate. So I might just send you a little hamper. Oh, amazing. That sounds great. <laughs> best talk payment ever. I know. The paddleboard, that was my best payment ever. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, I tell you what, getting into public speaking has hidden benefits, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> Except when the country's in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, welcome to our current life. This is when we start setting up podcasts. <laughs> so, Sarah, we finished up the last episode with you. Uh, landing in Mauritius at the end of your Indian Ocean row, which is so, so long ago now. How long was it between the end of the Indian and the early inklings of a brand new adventure, London to London? Well, the, the inklings actually happened while I was at sea. I seemed to spend a lot of time thinking about what might happen next. What would I do when I got home? I'd turned down um, a place at Oxford to do my teacher training because I was worried I wouldn't get back in time. I didn't want to waste a place. And so I I kind of was split between, do I go and do my teacher training, get qualified and go and teach? Or this other idea that was brewing, which was a global journey, because I was loving the ocean, loving what I was sort of learning, both the sort of about the geography and the science of it, but also the almost just the life stuff of being out and surviving and, and hopefully thriving within that really dynamic place. And so I started dreaming of a journey that would take me across the other oceans so I could see how they differed, what's the same, what would it be like. Um, and I really wanted to see some people. I wanted to see land. I wanted to see how that changed. <laughs> and what happened was this, this sort of, idea for a global traverse, I suppose, started um, 
yeah, it started, started occupying a lot of my time. And when I got home, I, I suppose I felt a bit pressured in both directions, really. Some people wanted to know what I'd be doing next. And I kept it really quiet. I didn't let anyone know for um, a little while that that was an idea. And then on the other hand, I felt a pressure, perhaps perceived, um, well, I don't know how real it was, but from people saying things like, oh, when are you gonna get, when are you gonna get a proper job? When are you gonna settle down? And I sort of felt this tension, I suppose. But a couple of months into to being at home and, and sort of, um, I've given some talks about the Indian Ocean and just sort of trying to think about what I would do. And it felt like a bit of a, an epiphany, I suppose when I really came to um, feel that the only option was to go and make this journey happen now, because if I didn't, then actually I didn't know what would happen down the line. I mean, at that time I was single, I had no house, no mortgage, no, no responsibility, ostensibly. <laughs> and I just felt, okay, this is something I've got to do now because I may never do it again. And so it was three months, I think it was three months between landing back in the UK and saying publicly for the first time, well, I think this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go around the world. And uh, there was then, I think, 15 months pretty much between um, saying that and setting off. So it was a pretty full-on 15 months of trying to get such a big project together and um, funded as, as much as I could and a team built and, and a plan made and, and roughly get ready and, and then off I launched. <laughs> I giggle thinking about how ridiculous it is on April Fool's Day 2011 like to pull that off in that frame of time was um, a bit bonkers really. <laughs> Did you ever get any messages on that day or the day after, uh, questioning whether it was it was really a, a, a true life venture. It was so mind-boggling. The not not only the the proposal that you put forward, but but everything that you had to do to get to that start line. I know it's just just bonkers. I I don't think I could do that now as a I'm 34, and I I just don't think I'd have that same. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I don't think I have that same level of nerve, but I think it's because it comes with knowing what it took to make that journey happen. And right now in my life, I'm married, um, we've got donkeys, I'm studying, like there's just so many things that, that make it, um, it would make it very different to set off with the intention of not coming home for a few years. Mm. Um, it's just not, not kind of where my life is now. Um, so I'm, I'm so grateful to my younger self for <laughs> having the nerve and making it happen. And importantly, to all the people, like it's a solar system of people that help you get away and home on a, on a big journey like that. So um, I'm so grateful that there were enough people around me and, and who sort of I found or came to me, whatever, we ended up in the same orbit who said, okay, I believe in this too, let's make this happen, because it was not a solo expedition. I spent a lot of time alone, but it was a lot of people helping that um, expedition become a reality. Hmm. We talked a little about the team you had on your Indian Ocean Row, but that was 
massively magnified for for London to London. And I think part of that is because there were so many different legs. For those people who haven't heard about London to London before, uh, sum it up in in as long or short a sentence as you like. Hmm. Okay, it was a bid to circle the Northern Hemisphere using human power, starting and finishing in London. Uh, using a, a rowing boat for the oceans, a kayak for the shorter ocean sections, and a bike for everything in between, or my own two feet when the bike failed. And so I kayaked from London down the Thames across the Channel to France. I swapped out for my bike and cycled across Europe and Asia to the far edge of uh, Russia. And then I kayaked and cycled down by the Russian island of Sakhalin to Japan and on to Japan's main island of Honshu. I then rode across the Pacific. First time round, it didn't go to plan. So I came home, had a break, went back out uh, the following year and did it again and ended up rowing to Alaska, the Aleutian Islands, because the weather had been so poor it prevented me from getting to Canada. I then cycled across North America in the winter, which was chilly, and rode home across the Atlantic Ocean. But there was a big surprise at the end. So I didn't, in fact, make it all the way across under my own power. And then the final bit of the journey took me from Cornwall up to Oxford by bike, which really hurts your legs when you haven't walked anywhere for quite a few months on a little rowing boat. (laughs) And then from Oxford to London by kayak. And the whole thing took four and a half years and had two periods where I was sort of forced to come back home in between that time. Um, the original plan was for a two and a half year journey, so it nearly took twice as long. <laughs> I, I don't know where to start, so probably let's, let's just start at the beginning. HMS President, just down, mm. just down the, the River Thames from, from the Tower of London. And I, 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 w- I was there on, on, on your launch day, and I remember this feeling of total jubilation, excitement, anticipation, and trying to imagine how you felt if that was what everybody else was going through. Can you, can you put yourself right back there on that pontoon before you, you got in the kayak? Yeah, I think your description of jubilation and anticipation is a really good one, because that sums up what I was feeling, along with a whole dose of nerves, sort of pre-race nerves, of for the first time, I think, realising just what I'd set myself up for, that I was going away for two and a half years. I mean, I had huge um, pride and satisfaction and sort of gratitude for the fact we were there. I acknowledged that it was such a mission just to get to the start line and to be sharing it with lots of people who I knew and loved and people that I just started working with or sponsored and um, and just members of the public who turned up to sort of cheer this random girl in a boat on. That felt huge and exciting, but I definitely felt daunted as well. I don't think I'd slept properly for months. Um, <laughs> I'd just been working so hard at all hours of the day to try and get everything ready to go and um, that's how I shattered on one level and <laughs> also um, yeah just 
nervous about the sort of the responsibility. Was it even possible? Was I going to do it? Was I going to capsize underneath the bridge with all these people around me? Um, and, and then there's that wonderful thing about just knowing that once you get going, things start to settle down. Um, and OK, it probably took a couple of weeks, actually, for things to totally settle down. But um, there's, I think there's great peace that can come with momentum. You've know, hmm. just got to get going and then keep it going. Mm, so, so true. I, after you got into Nelson the kayak and, and set off from that pontoon, uh, I, I remember seeing a few confused faces because you turned the wrong way. Uh, can you exp- can you explain <laughs> that? Maybe that was uh, a precursor to all of the all of the un unforeseen challenges that were to come oh that's funny I, I don't think I'd realized that but I can imagine it's because I paddled um, upstream to start with to get underneath Tower Bridge because I wanted that to be the marker point and HMS President is ever so slightly downstream from Tower Bridge by a couple of hundred meters and so <laughs> uh, yeah I'd have paddled a few hundred meters back upstream ready to be uh, sort of beneath the bridge for one o'clock or whatever the time was um, and and then to make the sort of the ceremonial start I suppose and it was flanked flanked by um, I don't know at least one or even two navy boats mm. I can't quite remember but my family and friends um, were, were on that navy boat and there was a, um, a CC helicopter above all the normal London traffic, waves bouncing around, people on the bridge. It was surreal. I had the biggest grin, the biggest grin, which was laced with fear for, I really hope I don't fall in right now. That's going to be embarrassing. (laughs) Well, it was, this was April 1st, 2011. Isn't that crazy? Nine months, nine years ago, sorry. Nine years ago. No, my... My um, things from no, that is nine years ago. Yeah. Hold on. When are we? Twenty twenty. Yeah, just over nine years. <laughs> Brain free. <laughs> I was also. Uh, I remember. I was. I was on that boat taking photos of, of you and Justine as you paddled out, and I was stood next to your mum who was going absolutely crazy, and uh, I was trying to get some film. And I, <laughs> it was. It was so hard to. I was trying to get you to shout something, but I think that was just a fool's errand. But I was also feeling that anxiety for you. We uh, a, almost a year before, maybe nine months before, we we paddleboarded together through London and landed at HMS President, and going through centre centre of London with all of those ferries zooming up and down, kicking up the wake, bouncing off the brick walls at the riverbank. Uh, it, it's not a pleasant place to to paddle. It's not, is it? There's this mix between sort of um, being in awe at paddling through the centre of London with all these famous landmarks and, uh, and, and the sort of just the height, I suppose, of, of land above where you are on the water. It's, you know, it's quite a deep um, sort of river basin at that point. Um, but yeah, like you say, everything's zipping around and there's waves bashing around and there's a real sense of uh, sort of free sobs. The whole experience. I, think. I, I do remember fondly that paddleboarding trip, Dave. Um, yeah, the, the bits downstream much better than the bits in central London. I think. <laughs> always, always. 
so you left the crowd behind and continued on downstream this time along the Thames with with Justine. You had a, a section of the Thames to go, obviously, and then the next challenge was to cross the channel. How how did that go? Yeah, so I think a big shout out to Justine at this point. So <laughs> Justine Kigenvin, I, I call her the queen of sea kayaking because <laughs> um, she's a bit of a badass in a boat. I mean, she's badass on land as well, but definitely in a boat. And when I planned the journey, you know, kind of sketching out routes in um, the little bedroom where I was staying in my mum's house across this massive map spread out across the bed, um, I knew that the journey would involve some kayaking legs. And I knew that I didn't have the sort of technical skill and experience to pull that off safely by myself. So I looked for someone who would be able to to come and keep me safe and, and be a part of that. So Justine provided provided that support. Um, and so yeah, setting off down the Thames across the Channel. What was what was that like? Oh, I was just shattered. So it was an effort. <laughs> stay awake in the boat because that section is tidal it's tidal from a little bit upstream of Tabridge, about 17 miles upstream so um, you've got to plan when you paddle with the tide and just paddle on the ebb and then stop when it's flooding and so it meant that for a couple of days we paddled on and off um, having I don't know about a couple of hours sleep uh, when we could which meant that by the time we got round to Ramsgate sort of area on the Kent coast, ready to cross the channel, that I kind of had nothing left to give. I was really, um, yeah, really struggling with sort of fatigue, but equally being absolutely pumped with adrenaline as well. So just kept eating and a little bit of sleep here and there. We, um, we made the channel crossing overnight in kind of marginal weather really but we did it because I wanted to get going and get across to mainland Europe and I didn't want to wait for an incoming storm to pass <laughs> so I remember we got into the boats and I was thinking hmm, I've only ever paddled in the dark once before and now I'm paddling across the channel this is good <laughs> and I remember we were out we were out with these sort of sideways waves bashing into the boat um, picking our way through in, in the blackness and we had an escort boat and that was maybe I don't know 20 meters off or something um, and Justine said something along the lines of if I'd known it was this rough we wouldn't have come and I was thinking I'm really glad we didn't know it was this rough because I wanted to get going and we had a really quite a slow crossing of the channel um, overnight and you get all the sort of sleep monsters and hallucinations and there's one bit I wasn't quite sure which way was up or down because of the reflection onto the water um, and it was such a good sight to see the sort of um, the lights of, of Calais just kind of coming out of the dawny dusky kind of grey and then um, it felt like all of a sudden we were, we were there um, and we'd made it and that felt like such a relief <laughs> it felt like such a relief and, and quite a big milestone you know we really left the UK behind so you've you've hit land you know you've you've almost got two legs out of the way now you've got you know kayaking down the Thames and then across the channel you've started you're exhausted 
and is it now time for you to head on on your bike solo or did you have any company for a while yeah I had company for a couple of days after that um so there was Justine and then Tim who was logistics manager and one of my best pals Claire uh they were in a sort of a support car following to make sure that I was um I sort of had everything I needed just tinker with this and that but also to film so we got some footage of those first couple of days um and it was really nice also to have some company too so sometimes one of them would cycle with me um it was really great rocking up and they'd hand me some lunch or uh pass me a beer or something like that but really I think it was just a couple of days um once I got over the border into Belgium they turned and I carried on alone and that was quite a big moment you know there'd been that huge crescendo in getting ready to leave London I think I'd been staying down in London for the week before I left lots of people really busy um sort of push 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 all the time and and then suddenly it's kind of silence and it was just me and the bike um and whoever I met on the road which in Belgium was a lot of people actually generally clad in lycra um also on bikes so uh yeah that represented a real yeah it was it was almost like the start really like the real start obviously mm. we you know done all those miles from from London but now it was it was really just me and the bike hmm i i i feel like i i completely understand where you're coming from on my own trips I've had so many groups of people join me at, at different legs it feels like forest gump sometimes mm. and I'm always so relieved just to not that it was a bad experience but just to just to get out there solo again and and have the freedom and simplicity that comes with that how long did it take you to ride across Europe and what what was your route so my route was kind of a straight a line as I could get I, I seem to remember um to 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 sort of take me on towards the continent i was really looking at where could i go that would be sort of the fastest and most direct route i was just thinking about getting to the far eastern edge of russia uh, before winter arrived um so i went through let's see france belgium netherlands germany czech republic poland ukraine russia um and then into Kazakhstan so crossing i want to say the aral river but i can't remember if that's right that feels bad not to remember such an important <laughs> memory but you know it's such an important detail rather but there was crossing a river as i came out of almaty um which is the no it's not almaty sir what are you talking about Oh, this is going to really annoy me now that I can't remember all the all the names. So, an important city in the sort of southwestern um area of of Kazakhstan and I cannot remember the name and that's embarrassing. That represented um leaving Europe proper behind and and crossing into into Asia, you know, geographical terms. Hmm. And from there it was across the dusty steppe of Kazakhstan and blazing heat with snakes everywhere and then um, up through the mountains into China um and and on to more dusty heat through the Gobi Desert 
um, and sort of onto Beijing and, and beyond, which then then took me back into real sort of Far Eastern Russia. <laughs> I think, first of all, uh, you know, so many places you you pedaled and, and kayaked from and to, uh, it's, it's not at all surprising that, you know, recalling many of those names is, mm. uh, remains to be difficult. Most of this journey was solo, but now and then you 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 picked up a, a companion. Um, tell us about Gao. Oh, Gao is such a happy story in my sort of storytelling of, of the London to London journey. Um, so coming into China, I was coming in from, from Kazakhstan and I'd, I'd been there a couple of days and I felt daunted by the newness of it. I feel like I'd kind of come to feel a little bit at home in Kazakhstan um, because I spent five and a half weeks crossing the country and it felt quite similar to Russia which I'd sort of been in for about 10 days before so I'd had over six weeks of speaking Russian and having sort of similar foods and just feeling yeah feeling at ease um, to some degree and and over the border into China immediately things felt quite different and the yeah the, the sort of the complexity of the language um, felt a bit daunting and I was swamped by people everywhere I went and it felt there was no personal space and it was as I say a couple of days in when I met Gao and it, it sort of feels like everything changed at that point <laughs> so he um, is Chinese and at the time he was 23 so a couple of years younger than I was. And we met in a petrol station. And I was choosing food and he was getting fuel or whatever for the car. And he was really intrigued by my bike, Hercules, who was sat outside and fully laden with all my gear. Um, and he came and had a chat and it was really clear that he was really in awe of what I was doing and that he wanted to have a go as well. He wanted a bike journey. But he didn't know how to do it, and he didn't think that he could, and he didn't think he was strong enough, and so just all the reasons why he couldn't. And I said, oh, dude, it is just riding a bike. You just need a bike and a bag and go and have a go. And I gave him my email address and said that I really looked forward to hearing from him one day. I hoped that he'd tell me about his bike journey. And Half an hour down the road, you know, we've gone in our different directions. He pulls up in the car, he's with his brothers and his cousins, and he declared that he wanted to come with me. He wanted to ride a bike across China to Beijing, which was the capital city, and 2,000 miles away at that point, uh, which was not what I'd expected at all. And I remember at the time thinking, I don't think he should come. This is ridiculous. What if he's not fast enough? What if his bike breaks? And, you know, I'm the one now thinking of all the reasons why hmm. he can't come. Um, and uh, he said, there was something he said that was really, really cool. He said, Sarah, you be the leader and, and I'll be the translator and the guide. And there was that sort of moment of, of just thinking, well, what's the worst that will happen? And, you know, I've just told him anyone can do this. And now I'm trying to put him off I should just totally give him a go and, and see see what happens hopefully he'll um, you know have a have a good few days and, and go on his own way or or would he even go the whole way 
And so we wrote a shopping list of things you needed to sort of buy, find, borrow, whatever. Um, said goodbye, exchanged numbers. And two days later, he rocked up at the hotel where I was staying, um, you know, this sort of planned date. And he was top to toe in red cycling gear, um, he had a massive Chinese flag out the back of the bike, uh, little Chinese flags across the handlebars. Um, he shaved off his hair. He was ready. It was the coolest and probably most surprising thing to happen to me. Um, and we had eight weeks, no, not eight weeks, two, uh, five weeks cycling together, those 2,000 miles. Um, and it, it just turned to be the, the sort of the most fun times to be hanging out with this young guy who'd never cycled more than a couple of miles and was learning on the, you know, as, as he went, how to repair punctures, what to do to look after himself, how to put up a tent. It was just uh, sort of the most special thing to be alongside him as he did that and, and for us to have that shared journey together. Um, it was great. Oh, it's just absolutely beautiful. And I, I, I'd be surprised if there was another story on your on your journey that was told more than the one about Gao. Just listen, I've heard I've heard this obviously a, a few times now, but for the first time uh, hearing you speak about it um, nine years later, the contrast uh, and I, I, I find it really funny, the contrast that you spent 14 months planning this journey and then meet this guy in a petrol station and say, mate, it's easy. You, all you need is a bag and a bike and have a go. Yeah, <laughs> and he walks up funny. two days later and goes for it. How, how important is it that we, that we share you know, these, these adventure stories? It's, it's so much easier to go off and do something when you're exposed to somebody mm. else who's, who's proving that it's possible. And, in, and obviously, you know, the work that, that you took to bring this journey together made it possible for Gao in two days to to get on mm. his bike and enjoy that adventure with you. How important is it that that this message is shared from from all adventures? Oh, it's huge. It's so huge. And I think one of the reasons why I love Gao's story so much is that it's so relatable. And and I don't mean that that, you know, everyone's gonna go and cycle across the desert tomorrow, but the idea that all of us, all of us, all of us, have things that we'd like to do and that we're a bit scared of having a go and, and doing it. And, and we think of all the reasons why we can't or we shouldn't. Um, and I think particularly, you know, when I'm talking about my journey, it, it was such a massive journey. It did take that long to put together because it was so complex. And I think that can be daunting and somehow abstract. I mean, I find it abstract to think about sometimes. So <laughs> I really love um, using Gao's example because we can all relate to what he was feeling and why he hadn't had a go before. Um, but I think we can all imagine without too big a sort of leap, really, um, saying, OK, I'm going to I'm going to have a go. And like I say, it might not be cycling across the desert, but there's I think there's versions of it where we, we can just say, I'm, I'm just going to get started and see mm. what happens. And I think the power of saying, I'm going to see what happens, I'm going to step off the edge and, and see, see what works, um, I think that's so huge. And I'm so kind of excited by just how many lives Gal's story and his spirit has touched. 
Mm. Um, and I, I don't think he'll ever fully sort of appreciate that. Um, I mean, I've told him lots, but, you know, when I deliver those stories to lots of people or share them with the film and just hear people's feedback um, and, and that he is the, the hook that they remember years later even, mm. I just think that's so special. And I'm so, so glad that the universe put us in the same place that day and that he was brave enough to ask if he could come with me and that I was sort of brave enough and open enough um, to say, yeah, okay, let's have a go. Um, and it became, yeah, it became such a rich story for me. He became such a motivation for me at different, at different times. So um, it, kind of, it kind of illustrates that within my, my journey and, and the plan for how I thought it would happen, the best bits, the richest sort of stories or, or lessons, they all came from the stuff that didn't happen according to plan, I mean, stuff that I couldn't have foretold, stuff that went wrong, in fact. I mean, Gal definitely wasn't a going wrong moment, but the stories later on where stuff really went deeply wrong, um, that that was where the, the magic ultimately came to sort of grow, really. Hmm. When did Gal leave you? Was it when you, when you made it to the, to the coast? Gal left me in Beijing, yeah. So we had five weeks together. And he was, in essence, he was kind of cycling back home. He, at the time, he'd been in Western China in uh, Xinjiang province with his brother. They had um, business there. But his family is based in the Hubei province um, near to Beijing. So he was actually kind of heading home. And so he stopped in Beijing and I cycled on by myself, hmm. which made for a really different experience having had you know, this native Chinese speaker with me for the last five weeks and, and doing things as a team. And Gao would always do the ordering of food and um, working out of things. And then all of a sudden, it was just me and my Todd again. That was, I felt a bit bereft, actually. Um, I definitely missed his company. Um, as much as it was good to get back into soloing again, I also really, um, yeah, just really appreciated what I'd what I've just experienced with him. I bet. Did you stay in touch during your, your final weeks in, in China? Have you seen him since? Oh, we haven't seen each other since. Um, I'm really looking forward to the time when we actually do. Um, no, we've just seen each other online as we talk and we sort of share photos with each other. Hmm. Um, he did stay in touch through China. Yep, he was really keen to, to make sure that I sort of left his patch safely, so to speak. Hmm. Um, and, and we sort of stayed in touch off and on through the journey as well. Um, and then there was a little bit of a hiatus. I can't quite remember why, apart from in my head, it's that he was being a bit of a rubbish bloke at being in contact. <laughs> I think for whatever reason, um, sometimes communication in and out of China is, is challenging for mm. all sorts of reasons. Um, but he's, yeah, he's, well, actually, I need to check in with him sort of post corona situations mm. but certainly earlier in the year when I spoke to him um, his little girl had just turned a year old um, he's married and he's riding his bike lots he seemed really happy and and healthy so I really hope that that's how things still are for him oh that's magic you are going to be a character in in stories for that little girl as she grows mm -hmm. up so it's now time to get back 
with Nelson the kayak, uh, a notoriously uh, difficult stretch of water across to Sakhalin Island. And does, does that mean that Justine joined up with you again? Yeah, that's right. The, the plan was always that Justine and, and Tim, the logistics manager, would fly out to Far Eastern Russia and join me for the, the next six weeks to get uh, down to Japan. It's such a complex place to to try and do what we were trying to do. So kayaking in areas where there's sort of little information, there's little coverage by any sort of rescue service. Um, the waters are, are not especially well kind of charted. Just logistically trying to get bits of kit um, to, to these sort of remoter areas was, was challenging, ladled with bureaucracy, sort of faff. So it meant that actually um, we almost didn't have a kayak shipped in for me. It almost didn't arrive. When it did, it had a massive hole in it. It had been crushed on the way. So all of a sudden we had to get that repaired. And then my bike broke. And so we were just sort of problem solving on the fly. Um, in yeah in, in quite a sort of remote area you know nothing is nothing is close you can't just get something fixed really readily so it turned into a, a, a complex and, and stressful like the most stressful part of, of the whole journey I think actually um, but also one of the most beautiful I think because of that remoteness and the ruggedness and the isolated communities um, I just remember real a real openness a warmth a kindness a curiosity from the people that we met um, and so much vodka <laughs> so much vodka oh my goodness <laughs> can you still drink it <laughs> no I generally I generally don't drink vodka these days no um <laughs> But yeah, just such a such a warmth. And, and I remember one thing that was, it was surprising to me, but it, it shouldn't have been surprising really, was the idea that the Russia that I was experiencing there, you know, almost 10,000 miles away from the Russia I'd last experienced um, before going into Kazakhstan, that they felt really similar. Um, so that, yeah, that felt curious, this idea that I traveled sort of across the earth that here I was with the people who felt um, yeah somehow very very familiar hmm. um, that sort of difference in between um, yeah so we call it the far eastern question in our planning because there was nothing ever straightforward about what that leg would look like I mean in ideal terms you'd get from North Korea to South Korea and skip across the water to southern Japan. Um, it would be a really it would be a fascinating journey um, and it would be logistically, I mean, if we can just take North Korea's um, challenges out of the equation, it would be logistically much simpler than uh, island hopping like we did. But obviously politics dictate where adventures must happen sometimes. Um, mm. So we went yeah, we went in through Sakhalin. What was the what was the distance you had to kayak from mainland China to Sakhalin, and then from Sakhalin to Japan? 
Well, because of my bike breaking, we had to change our plan of, of kayaking about seven miles across to Sakhalin to kayaking 20 miles um, across the water to, to Sakhalin, having kayaked, I don't know, 20 miles up the coast or something as well. So to put that in context, when I've just sat on my bike for the last six months to then get into a fully laden kayak, and go on a big open water crossing in this remote stretch hmm. felt so daunting, so daunting. I really felt the pressure of what we were setting out to do and therefore kind of what I was asking of Justine as well because she was obviously the way, the way more experienced kayaker and, and was kind of responsible, but equally I was really responsible too for sort of saying, okay, let's, let's go for it. So, yeah, I think we had um, 20 miles up the coast, 20 miles across to Sakhalin. Then I can't remember if we paddled 30 or 50 miles down the coast to where I next picked up the bike. And then, uh, was it about 600 miles or something? It was a good few hundred miles to get um, to get to the south end of the island before getting back in the kayaks. And we had a, a really tricky sort of, situation to to leave Sakhalin and, and get over to Japan and, and do it all every step of the way under human power hmm. because there's rules about where you can sign out of the country where you get your passport stamped so we ended up doing this really convoluted stupidly expensive I mean I'm I'm daft that's what I am Dave I'm daft <laughs> being so keen to to do every step of the way human powered um that we, we ended up kind of paddling out to sea, putting a GPS, GPS fix, paddling back to shore, getting a, a, a Land Rover to drive us, or Jeeps to drive us and the boats back up to the port where we could officially stamp out of Russia. Then we chartered a fishing boat to drop us at the other end of the island. We paddled back illegally into Russian waters, hit the GPS point, great, that's my human-powered loop turned around paddled the 13 miles back to that point that we'd been dropped off and then we still had another 13 miles to paddle to japan i mean i look at that now and on every level it is ridiculous we were risking being thrown out of the country and never being allowed back in again we were risking arrest we were risking um oh just all sorts of things and and the complexity and, and sort of financial um faff of, of all of that is is way more than I'd be prepared to do now. Definitely. But I was so intent on um, doing it every every step of the way that I could. Hmm. But we did it. Kudos to Justine. She puts up with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe this was a sign of things to come. You know, you you hmm. spend you spend so long uh, preparing for this goal, and it and at times certainly as uh, nature and circumstance starts knocking on your door uh, mm. asking you whether that original plan was really the wisest thing to go through with all of the way you made it to Japan uh, and you you then cycled to to the east coast and not to not to brush over Japan but I, I think the crucial elements of of this trip you know started to started to happen as soon as you you got to Japan um, and prepping for, for the Pacific Row. Would that be fair to say? 
Yes, that would be fair to say. I'd always imagined that the Pacific would be the party piece to the whole journey. Uh, because it's long and it's arduous, I imagined it would be filled with wildlife. Um, I knew I wasn't going to get an easy pass to cross. You, you never do with an ocean row. Um, I set off in the Olympic year, so it was the, the summer of 2012, and it was about three weeks in when my weather router over the satellite phone um, emailed to say that there was a big storm coming um, and that I was in the, in the firing line, so to speak. Uh, it was a tropical storm that would be downgraded to a Sorry, it was a typhoon that would be downgraded to a tropical storm by the time it reached me a, a week later. And that I had a decision to make about what to do. Was I going to request a pickup from passing shipping before that cleared out of the way? Or was I going to batten down the hatches and see what happened? And on the back of data that was coming in um, and chatting to different people and, and sort of thinking about things myself, I decided that I was going to stay. And it's an interesting thing to look back on now. Do I regret it? Um, I, I would never wish that experience on anyone. I had three days to the little bunk in my boat, um, <laughs> being, being terrified of, of what might happen, wondering if I was going to be okay and if we'd make it out the other side in one piece. I'm here, we did make it out the other side in one piece, um, and, and a lot of sort of learning and great things came from the fact that I was picked up afterwards, I was, I was rescued by the Japan Coast Guard um, because my boat had been damaged such that I couldn't repair and, and carry on. Um, and I came back to the UK and arguably faced an even bigger storm, which <laughs> is sort of the PTSD that <laughs> came exploding out afterwards. Um, I also met a couple of months, well, sorry, a few, yeah, good few months later, it was sort of seven months later, um, I met my now wife, Lucy. So I'm grateful for having, you know, had that happen and, and to meet Lucy at that time. And I'm glad for what I've been able to take from the sort of the PTSD experiences too, which have been problematic and quite destructive since as well but I think when you go through stuff that profoundly affects you like that you know, deep pain and, and anguish and you're taken to edges of self-destruction that you've not been to before it just comes with that uh, an empathy and a sort of a knowledge that is then helpful to other people and of an understanding that I'm, I'm really grateful to have. So on this side of things, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for what 
that storm gave. Um, but it's yeah, it's not an experience I'd wish on any. Maybe there's a certain US president that would. <laughs> 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 the benefit being shaken around a bit. <laughs> Let, let's not dive into that one. <laughs> after after all of that, how how do you reset your mind to a level where you even consider, let alone go back and start again? That's that's such a fascinating sort of period really um or such a fascinating process rather how that happened because even as i lay in my boat waiting for the japan coast guard to arrive i knew that i wanted to get back to the ocean i knew i i knew i had to get back to the ocean and there was a mixture of reasons but mostly it was about the fact that i still loved the ocean that storm hadn't changed it. It just increased my respect for it, which I sort of hope that every time I go out to sea, that's still there in, in, a stronger, in a stronger form. But I knew that healing would be found by being back at sea, partly because that's what the sea does to me. That's what it means to me, hmm. this kind of place of renewal and timelessness and sort of freshness um, but also I knew that there was still more than half the journey left to go and that that still was, was valid and I still believed in it it was still meaningful there were still lots of stories to share it felt to me as though whether or how I got back to the ocean was more contingent on whether my sponsors supported it, sort of the main sponsors uh, and also could I get another boat because I'd lost my boat Gulliver in that process and um, yeah ocean round boats are really bloody expensive <laughs> so how how would I do it like logistically how would I do it um, once I'd found answers to those which was yes those main sponsors still supported it if I if, if that's what I wanted to do um, and, and then amazingly the insurance paid out and I was able to buy a second-hand boat. So that was kind of one narrative, I suppose, was the practicality. And I think in some ways that was, that was kind of what pulled me through on, on the sort of more fundamental sort of health level, was just being so focused about getting back out to sea. Um, I spent a lot of time swimming in that time I just followed the black and white line up and down the pool up and down the pool it felt as though in the pool where things boiled down to just keeping your body moving and keeping breathing <laughs> in as calm a way as possible it felt like that was one of the most peaceful places that I I could be because when I was outside of the pool I just had this riot of self-destructive battering kind of language going on and um, real physical symptoms of, of fear and adrenaline pumping all the time and um, 
it was really yeah it was a really difficult place to be so if I could be in the pool swimming if I could be out walking my mom's dogs um, or lifting weights that was that was kind of my space of, of relief I suppose and I think bit by bit that helped move me forward hmm. along with kind of opening up to just a few people about what was what was going on because when I first came back I felt again a perceived pressure probably um, that I should be okay and, mm. and everything should be fine because a few people said oh you must be so happy to be back and on one level yes there, there was happiness and, and gratitude to be home and, and safe and um, to see people that I hadn't seen for 15-16 months but on another level, my body still thought that I was trapped in that boat on the ocean. And so um, it was this really weird kind of uh, existence of pretending that I was okay and actually inside being being torn apart. <laughs> um, so yeah, not, not the best of times. They were difficult, difficult times. Did you did you feel on on a level when you when you got back to Japan and what you know unlike the Sakhalin uh, kayaking leg where you you marked that GPX GPX spot did you did you do the same just before you were you were rescued by the Japanese Coast Guard before you left Gulliver or uh, what what was the thought process behind restarting that leg? Well, I knew that I knew that the ocean was still the ocean with all its kind of wonder and magic and stories and, and that the whole journey had that same meaning for me as well and um, so I knew that I had to go back and row the Pacific that's what I wanted to do and it, it was a need hmm. um, I didn't go back to the place where I'd been picked up um, A because it just felt like it was a sort of a fresh start but also importantly to to go and get dropped off 700 miles out to sea I mean that's a logistical and financial challenge um, and and one that I wasn't even prepared to kind of go near in terms of thinking about um, trying to pull that off but I had we, we did have a mark um, from where I'd been picked up so that was that was an important milestone to kind of recognize that as I passed that point um, in the early, in the early days of of the journey, that sort of that second attempt, and to yeah, to feel feel the gratitude for what we'd managed to do in terms of okay, we got off the ocean safely the first time, got home, um, survived that second storm of, of the PTSD and, and sort of fall out of that um, that time, and then get get back out to the ocean I mean, that's it's kind of no easier really to get back out a second time within a short space of time as well mm. than it was to get there to start with so it felt like a huge yeah huge relief really this kind of um marker of okay we survived and we're going forward mm. still worth it oh definitely 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 i mean people have often said um, how did you go back out to sea given what happened and given the fallout that you experienced when you came back and 
oh, when I just think of the ocean, when my whole body smiles at just what I feel when I'm out there. Um, it's a sublime place to be. Oh, you've been out in the deep ocean. You just can relate to the space, the vastness, the dimensions mm. that are just mind-boggling. The colours and how it changes and it feels like it's your own little bit of ocean. You don't see anybody else for days at a time and seeing wildlife, that's just so magic. Hmm. I, yeah, I, I can never imagine something so terrible happening that I wouldn't want to be on or near or in the ocean. It was, yeah, it, it's always worth it. Hmm. And considering such, you know, awful things have happened to you out there, uh, I, I, I think that says an awful lot coming from you, Sarah. Uh, I think everybody listening to you uh, speak optimistically and positively about the ocean. Their bo entire bodies are smiling as well. Mine, mm. mine certainly is. You're back in the Pacific and you're knitting your way <laughs> across the ocean. Yeah. You, you know... You, you have an affinity with this with this wide open, wild space, but were you always in love with it, especially when it wasn't treating you so well? Hmm. I I always loved the ocean, uh, even on those days that you describe where I'm knitting, so that's basically going around in circles and being pushed and pulled by currents or contrary winds. Um, I suppose it's not that I fell out of love with the ocean in those times. I just wanted those moments to be quicker, you know? There's, uh, maybe it's, there's a parallel to this time, actually, this time that we've, we're recording this podcast in where the country's in a state of lockdown trying to contain the coronavirus. And to start with out at sea in, in these sort of stormy times or when the weather was against me, I would... Um, be really grateful for the fact I could have a little rest, I could um, maybe do some washing, or I'd get to read a bit, or, you know, depending what the circumstance was, I'd make the most of it, and kind of be grateful for it, um, to have a rest from rowing, and then it would become that I'd be a bit frustrated, I'd be um, anxious to get back out on the oars, the further into the journey I got, I would be questioning whether it was possible to make it to the other side still, um, you know, you can get into, I find I could get into quite a pickle of um, negative chat and, and so on. And then all of a sudden things would change again and I'd bounce back to, oh, this is great. This is exactly the place I want to be right now. So I think it was more about this kind of dance with um, my sense of acceptance about the situation and, hmm. and wrestling with that at times it wasn't even a dance it was a wrestle of trying to yeah just accept and I can't do anything about it so I'm going to try and keep my headspace as clear as possible um do what's useful do some rest um and and keep coming back to the idea that this will not last forever and so therefore to really um yeah be so grateful and and sort of enjoy especially enjoy all the great moments because they're finite, they're gonna they're gonna be replaced by a storm soon. But equally, to kind of 
do the same for the storms. And, and those days when I was thinking, oh, I just want a rest. I don't want to row today. <laughs> Be grateful that on those storm days I could get a rest. But it was, yeah, it was challenging, especially, especially because I was solo. I find that um, it can be easier to get into a, a sort of a pickle of negative thoughts about a situation when I'm by myself versus when I'm with someone else. Mm. I think that, that acceptance keeps on arising again and again. And this second attempt across the Pacific, for me, your your mental journey is is almost cemented there from the very beginning that determination to carry on um do what you set out to do but then slowly bit by bit as you're as you're heading east uh you you realize what's really important on this trip to 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 let to let it happen as it's happening um how much of that had to do with lucy being back home yeah, it's so interesting how um, things changed hugely when I got together with, with Lucy. I remember before going away, um, reading various books about long journeys, and they all seemed to come back to a love story. And I'd kind of go, oh, God, another bloody love story. <laughs> and, then, and then I became a bloody love story. <laughs> that was not expected. Um and it's interesting how it, yeah, how it changed what it was like to to be away, and and what it was like the idea of home as well. Mm. It really changed that for me, and that I felt this whole extra layer of responsibility. Um, I mean, before I always had a sense of being as responsible and safe as I could because I'm coming home to my family and and so on. But that felt, yeah, that felt different by degrees when Lucy and I were together. And so um, out on, on the Pacific, I, I became perhaps the first person ever to get engaged on the Pacific in a small rowing boat by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I called Lucy up on the satellite phone and asked her to marry me. And, and lots of people kind of went, oh, well, of course she was going to say yes, because you're out at sea by yourself. What if, you, what if she'd said no? Um, but we'd spent a lot of time before kind of I went away talking about the future and out at sea. We actually spent a lot of time talking as well. I had um, brilliant sponsorship from Iridium for the satellite phone. So we spent a lot of time talking and, and talking about life hereafter. Um, and, and that phrase, when you know, you know, hmm. well, we knew. Um, and so, yeah, there was this huge pull to to get home safely um, and it also yeah you, you referenced the other part so the, the, the change in that journey across the Pacific I, I wasn't even halfway across after four months um, it was really slow the weather just wasn't prevailing in the way that we expected to get certain windows I mean you know you're going to get crap weather but you also you need a certain degree of kind of weather in the right direction to, to help you make progress. And that just wasn't opening up. Every time it looked like it might, my weather router would say, ah, oh, I'm really sorry, actually, there's 10 days of headwinds now. Um, which meant I wasn't going to make it across to Canada in the way that we hoped and had first sort of planned. And so, 
we looked at the options and, and really the options were to row north to the Aleutian Islands, which are part of Alaska. They spread sort of westward from Alaska and then become um, Russian islands to the west before you hit the mainland. Or, or really it's to get a pickup. You know, none of the other islands were feasible and, and then looking at it in the context of carrying on the journey as well, it, it really was that the only option was to row to Adak in the Aleutians. Hmm. So that's what I did. I turned north and I spent a further month rowing and landed there after 150 days at sea on this tiny little island um, it's the most westerly inhabited place in the United States. And it was so wonderful to be safe and for someone else to look after me at that point um, and, and to know that the boat was safe because both myself and Happy Sock, my boat, were really pretty ragged by that point. Hmm. Um, and in fact, I flew home to the UK a week later um, and was diagnosed with pneumonia and then on coming out of hospital, I had sort of an anaphylactic reaction to my mum's dogs. Um, basically, my immune system was spent. Hmm. It was absolutely ragged. And that was my body's way of screaming at me to stop and take a bit of notice. So, yeah, the Pacific take two didn't end in quite the way I imagined either. In fact, all my ocean rows end slightly differently to how I planned. It's like, uh, it's like they've all got a pact with each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's just keeping you on your toes, Oots. <laughs> That's it. That's it. How long was it before you got back to ADAC and began that mesmerising island chain paddle towards mainland? So let me think. I must have got home in October and then we went back out March or April. So kind of five months, which I look at it now and I feel it was quite reckless really to, to go back, um, for me to go back with that level of ill health at that point. You know, it takes a lot to recover from pneumonia and it takes a lot to recover from your body's immune system basically imploding and I was not recovered I'd had so many rounds of antibiotics and steroids in those um, intervening months I was on really high dose um, allergy medication I'd put on loads of weight because of the steroids um, I was still really reactive to things so I definitely wouldn't make the same decision now about going back so soon but at the time I was so focused on keeping the momentum on keeping going and, and I still at that time had the attitude of yeah my body gets through anything um, and so Justine and I went back out in the spring uh, Lucy came with us in fact and we um, prepared the boats as best we could and, and sort of packed up all our food and things and then we spent um, I think two or maybe three days hiking across the island in the snow for part of it to the point where I'd finished in my rowing boat to the point where I was going to start in the kayak so again just so fixed on joining up the dots um, you know doing it as I said I would um, before before Justine and I struck out eastwards to to paddle 
paddle the island chain and, and the peninsula. As you say, a, a totally mesmerizing part of the world. I think you, or that, that journey introduced so many people to the Aleutians, uh, a chain that they, they'd never heard of before. And that was a really, really interesting section of of this trip for me to follow i i absolutely love the idea of paddling from island to island there's a real romanticism about that Mm. but you know even even this three-day hike across adak to get back to your your restart point in the the poor health that you were you were dealing with let alone getting into the kayak and and heading across some some pretty dodgy straits of water from Mm. island to island how how did your physical health improve um, as you got in the kayak and continued on and on, or or did it improve? Did you did you continue to struggle? Yeah, I mean it it did improve, but I still I still sort of look at where I was when we finished to kind of where I am now, and I just think that was it's not a good time. What I was asking of my body. Um, in that time and, and there's no wonder that it it didn't improve more really because you know you're putting such stress on your body and actually your body needs that energy to just repair itself um it's yeah it's amazing that i didn't get even worse actually um but i think being outside um 24 7 really and and in a sort of sea environment it was as allergen free as it could be really um, so yeah, on the one hand, I definitely improved in, in terms of my health. Um, but on the other, it, yeah, it was still a huge, a huge strain. And that's something that I don't really think I'd fully understood at the time. And, and therefore Justine hadn't either actually. And, um, I think that's something that only came later for both of us is this sort of understanding of, oh, right. Yeah, actually you weren't that well at the time were you Hmm. um and a sort of a softening towards the idea um because like you say it was it was an arduous arduous few months so it's 1500 nautical miles really remote um we probably called in at i don't know off the top of my head i want to say sort of seven or eight communities along the way um and perhaps there's another few that we didn't get a chance to to call in at so you've got big stretches between settlements um the the topography of the the area is incredible so it's part of the pacific ring of fire so you basically all these volcanoes popping up out of the sea and the sea floor is sort of correspondingly diverse and um, full of peaks and troughs and everything and the way that you've got the north sorry the the cold air of the bering sea to the north meeting the warmer air from the Pacific to the south, that's also kind of flooding and ebbing through those gaps um, along that crazy sort of topography of the bottom makes for some really um, challenging, feisty waters. And they're not very well documented because nobody quite knows what's happening. Um, you can have some rough charts, but um, they can still do something quite different when you when you get out there the, the, the tidal races so really demanding paddling in remote areas makes for pretty high levels of stress particularly when those distances between some of the islands or, or safe places to land 
are also really big. Like one crossing was 50 miles <laughs> on one day, for example. Um, and, and other days it might be an eight mile crossing, but that might take you three times longer than you expected because a massive tide race kicked up and, and kept pushing you away from land. So mm. it constantly kept us on our toes. And when we got to the peninsula, about 800 miles in, um, you then get the added bonus of having bears to, uh, <laughs> to look out for. So that added another level of um, sort of excitement and danger, I suppose. <laughs> in the film Home, which has been just gorgeously made about, about this entire journey, uh, I think my favourite bits of the bear encounters. <laughs> your your face is just an absolute yes. picture. I absolutely love those bits. <laughs> oh, especially the bear bear encounter. We get a lot of chat about that. <laughs> At the time I was in a stream having a little wash and I thought I saw Justine and I realised, shit, Justine's a bear now. <laughs> and this bear came padding down the river towards me. And it's funny because before that moment, I'd always thought that my first, sort of bear encounter up close to be this real spiritual experience mm. where I'd be kind of talking to the bear and ever so calm and actually what happened was I was a squealing wreck and I ran away from the bear and fell over and splashed such that the bear thought it was a great game to chase so yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh Eventually, it was time to get back on Hercules the bike again. This is this is just absolutely incredible. Every single one of these legs of your journey is a lifetime adventure to be proud of for a normal human being. And you've been through so much already. And then you decide to choose one of the worst winters on record to start cycling across North America. <laughs> were, you, were, you, were you tempted to, to hold off again? And... No, no, there was no temptation to wait anymore. The, um, the, the need to keep going was really strong, not just for sort of the momentum for my sake, but also the fact I had a team of people supporting me still. And I think there's only so many times you can say, oh, lost a boat, will you wait another year so we go again? Oh, gone to the wrong country, can we wait and go a different route round? Um, and, and sort of keeping that that support of sponsors. It, it was a real stress by this point to keep the expedition financed. Hmm. Um, I took on debt and I kept going back to sponsors kind of saying, oh God, my medical bills have just shot up or oh, we need to buy this bit of equipment. Um, that was a real stress and it did at times start getting in the way of really being present with what was going on hmm. around me. And I, I, I really didn't want that to be any more prolonged than it it needed to so I knew that I needed to, to finish and by this point also I was I was getting really homesick for Luce um, such that as I came down through the northern Rockies I was even considering stopping and just kind of going nope I'm in love I'm going back to Lucy I'm knocking this on the head <laughs> and, and I'm really glad that she said no don't do that um, and she came out to join me and we cycled across Canada together, um, which was was not very romantic because we were top to toe in down jackets and neoprene masks and all of that to stop things freezing. 
Um, but it was great to share it with her. And she'd been a, a sort of a kind of back end part of the team, you know, running things from home and communicating with people that were getting in touch or finding um, finding bits that I needed ahead of, of me on the road. So for her to experience kind of my side of things felt really good. For us to share it together felt really special. Um, and it's, I think, being a team in those conditions just makes things flow a bit better. Um, a bit like Gao in the desert, when some people said, oh, didn't he slow you down because he'd not cycled before? Okay, yeah, on some days maybe we cycled less far than I might have done, but overall the sort of the net effect, I think, is that actually we're faster. And I think the same is true with Lucy too. Yep, a bit slower at the start perhaps, but overall those two months I, I think I was stronger because we were together. Hmm. So North America, two thousand fourteen, fifteen. This is let's 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 quickly chat about the timeline here. You started in London, April first, two thousand eleven. Mm. You got back in your kayak to start the Aleutian leg. Three years later, mm-hmm. it took seven months then to to ride your your bike across North America, and then. The Atlantic then stands between, or rather, sloshes between hmm. you and and the UK. The end of this of this epic trip. Happy socks. I'm I'm guessing was you know how how was Happy socks picked up from uh, from ADAC and and taken to Massachusetts. Well, it's quite the logistical. Um... Yeah, quite the logistical feat to to bring something from uh, way out in the Aleutian chain. So she was put on a barge to start with, and the barge makes kind of I think it's monthly or bi-monthly deliveries sort of between Seattle all the way up the chain. Um, so she went on a barge down to Seattle, and then she got containered and, and went sort of through the canal back across the Atlantic. And I'm pretty sure. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure she went all the way back across the Atlantic to the boat builder in the UK um, to run repairs and install a, um, a wind turbine. I'd run out of power on the Pacific and it, it, it kind of meant we went under the bows of a container ship, which is not ideal. And so I, I needed to have a, um, a, a wind turbine on there for additional, additional power to the solar panels. So. Yeah, she went back home to the UK, got all the work done, got loaded up with um, gear and things, and then back out to Massachusetts. So the irony in, in me wanting to make a human-powered, sort of self-propelled journey around the planet was that my kit <laughs> with loops and laps and so many more miles than me. Um, yeah, quite, quite the logistical, the logistical feat. Sad. But we did, we, we met up again in the spring of 2015. So I'd just cycled in after a really slow, long winter. There was still snow on the ground in Chatham, Massachusetts, mm. on the Cape when I landed. I mean, little pockets of it in the forest, but it was there nonetheless. Um, and then I had, I think it was probably four, five, six weeks time, kind of eludes me, a, a number of weeks. Um, 
getting ready to to row, trying to switch out between cycling and then getting my head in gear for um, making sure the boat is as ready as possible, everything's packed on board, that I'm as ready as possible, getting some physical work done, so to speak, like some massage and <laughs> physio to, to try and encourage my body that it's a good idea to go rowing. Um, and then tune into the headspace as well, um, getting ready to, yeah, to self-isolate for a few months. <laughs> Which by now you're you're well practiced at. Were you were you really ready to get get back in the boat with you know another four months at sea yet again crossing yet another big ocean, the Indian and Pacific ticked off, the Atlantic left to go. Let's let's talk about that leg. Were you were you ready for it? And I mean, suffice it to say, of course, it wasn't simple. I was ready. I was ready for the idea that home was just across the water, mm. that I was nearly there. It was just the Atlantic left to go. But also, obviously, that, that caveat that it's still the Atlantic Ocean. It's huge. It's unpredictable. Um, and, and that there's no tickets to a safe passage. You know, you're still open to all the sort of the laws of, of chance and an unknown as well. Um, but I, I was really savoring the idea. I was really keen to savor the idea that this was probably going to be the last time that I ever soloed an ocean in a rowing boat again. Just had that sense. Um, so yeah, there was a mixture of being so ready for it, but this kind of, um, almost a wistfulness, I don't know if that's the right word, but a real, yeah, real acknowledgement that this part of my life is, is probably um, coming to an end. And off I went, off I went. It was um, probably the most peopled of my departures. I had a huge send off from Chatham. I'd really got to know quite a lot of the local community and I'd been very welcomed and, and very well supported by them. So it was very special to have the beach lined with loads of kids and people cheering and a couple of boats coming out with me filled with sort of new friends that I'd made. Hmm. And also Lucy had um, flown out from the UK to be there for the launch as well, which felt so special. But also this other layer of such an, an extra challenge as well. I'd never set off on an ocean row before with someone so close to me. They'd all been sort of friends that I'd recently made. Um, so that felt, yeah, so special, but also such a, such a sort of an emotional pull as well, seeing that the person I loved the most sat on the side of this boat in, in tears and knowing her sort of fear and worry um, and feeling hugely that responsibility to do everything I could to come home safely. Hmm. I suppose the fear and worry was justified a few, a couple of months later. The knitting continued once more. And hmm. then how, how do you feel as you're crossing the Atlantic now? 
you know very aware of 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 what being in that small boat or a small boat that size in the middle of a storm can feel like and can do mm. to you mentally and physically how do you feel when the storm starts to to brew again yeah so i mean there was a lot of stormy stuff on the atlantic and i noticed that my threshold for that fear to start with was much lower hmm. um, that I sort of now understand there was a sort of a residual fear still and, and trauma still held in my system from what happened previously such that um, my sort of tolerance was much less in some ways so I did feel a sort of surprise and frustration at different times quite early on sort of thinking I, I'm normally not as scared as this you know this shouldn't be how I'm feeling um, but I, yeah, I settle in, you get used to it, and you find different tricks for managing that fear. And um, oh, I had such an amazing experience for, for many reasons. Um, certainly, it was the most social of oceans in my sort of experience of ocean crossing. I had um, flybys from the Canadian Air Force, I think they were, sort of out on patrol looking for baddies. Um, and they did a few flybys and I had chats with them over the radio. I spoke to fishing boats. I'd never been close enough to speak to fishing boats before. I had ships turn around and come and check on me because uh, they kind of thought, oh, what's this little white boat doing? Um, and I had, I had a resupply from some French yachts as well. Um, after I don't know how many days in I was three three and a bit months I think because it was taking so long to get across once again um, I was hit by a um, phenomenon called the North Atlantic Oscillation where basically a pressure system that normally sits over the Azores and feeds southwesterly winds that are going to help you row home um, that had moved a thousand miles north so I was getting pounded by headwinds there um, and so I, I yeah, saw these wonderful French sailors um, dropping off some food and supplies to me. And then I, I can't remember the timings of it. It was some time after that anyway that um, I was about 600 miles from Cornwall at this point. And I had news of Hurricane Joaquin that we've been following down in the Caribbean um, instead of going inland it was now set to head out to sea and it was coming my way <laughs> and so once again my weather router you know pitched this news to me and and said you know what what do you want to do and I said that I was going to take the pickup this time <laughs> um, it was forecast to be worse than the experiences I'd been through on the Pacific and yeah, I just wasn't prepared to take that risk. Um, hindsight is a really good thing at times, isn't it? <laughs> so I, I made the yeah, I made the decision to get picked up, and and spoke to my logistics guy back in the UK, and he set in process that cascade of asking for assistance, and it was about four hours later, I think that I was picked up. I made contact with the ship um, who was sort of closest and, and coming my way, the Federal Oshima. And I'd roughly packed a few things um, and trying to sort of come to terms in my head with the idea that all of a sudden my ocean was 
was going to be over and that I was probably leaving my boat. It was, um, yeah, a really emotional few hours. Um, <laughs> and then the pickup happened in not, not the best way. I mean, if ever there could be a best way, I mean, you're doing something in quite dynamic conditions. But essentially, I, I ended up between their big boat and my little boat. So I had this moment of thinking, you're here to keep me safe, and, and this doesn't feel very safe right now. You were in the water? Yeah, I, I ended up falling between the two boats. Um, it was not it was not the best of times. It was not the best of times. What happened? But I... Uh, so... We, they manoeuvred their big boat and to sort of beam on, so sideways on to my little boat um, and, and the weather. And I manoeuvred into position and lots of people shouting and um, they put a gangway down the side of the boat, which kind of threw me a bit because I was expecting a cargo net. Hmm. And I thought they'd said jump and I jumped. And at that point, the boat, um, yeah, the, the sort of sea moved, so the boat, their boat went up and, and mine didn't. So I ended up just holding on to this gangplank by my elbows and, and sort of hanging down beneath it. And um, they, the guys at the end of the gangplank went to grab my jacket, which actually then just pulled my jacket up above my head and the, the rubber seal over my my face so I couldn't breathe and I couldn't see and they couldn't pick me up because it was just my jacket which was sort of um yeah just riding up my body I suppose um, and, and by this point I'm now kind of hanging by my hands off the end of the um jetty still they've got my jacket and it's pulled up over my head and I ended up falling into the water um and, and swimming back to my boat and and then I think they threw a life ring down. I sort of grabbed that and swam to them and, and got into the boat. So it was, yeah, it, it, it was not what any of us had hoped for or imagined at that point. And um, for quite some time afterwards, I gave myself a, a really hard time about not being more assertive and sort of saying, oh, this is what I want to do. Um, and then somebody pointed out to me, sir, you were just doing what you thought was the best at the time. Mm. Give yourself a hard time about it. Um, yeah, I, I then was taken sort of down into the into their big ship and they said they'd bring happy socks on board. But actually what happened when I went up a couple of hours later was that um, they were cutting happy socks away and they hadn't brought her on board. And that was devastating. I felt like I'd failed her. Like I'd abandoned her, um, and I nearly, I nearly jumped over the side because I thought, well, if they won't let me go down and, and sort her out and tie her on and bring her up, then if I jump in, then they have to stop. <laughs> but I'm really glad I didn't do that as well. Um, so I, I cried my eyes out as happy socks drifted away over the waves, um, and in that weird sort of situation of, of being so devastated that that had just happened but also trying to somehow contain that because I was very aware that these people had diverted their 
shit to come and pick me up and make me safe and I was grateful um, so trying to sort of hold all of that and, and somehow make these two worlds meet up felt really huge yeah well, to be mindful of that in the face of what was obviously a traumatic couple of hours is is incredible you you know lo- losing you Gulliver was lost in the Pacific and now Happy Socks these are not just the boats and the memories that you associate with them but what about the hard memories the 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 SD cards your your camera the kit inside mm-hmm. was did did that all go with Happy Socks as well no luckily I'd managed to um, bring a couple of bags off so I had things like passport medication um, SD cards a set of codes so I had some of those things and, and ditto for the Pacific actually I was able to bring off a couple of bags so I had all the, the really important um, sort of technical stuff and a few random things as well like I'd managed to put a whole bag of hats in the bag <laughs> whereas the, I'm really I'm, I am sad about with Happy with Gulliver sorry that I left um, like a a number of trinkets, little things that have been given to me. Um, <laughs> my, yeah, but it's things at the end of the day, isn't it? It's things. Mm. So, and I mean, the cool thing is that both of these boats later turned up. Um, <laughs> so Happy Socks rocked up in Ireland um, three months after I left her. And I was able to go over and pick her up and thank her for having kept me safe um, and sort of clean her up as best I could. And I then sold her on to another rower, Leah Ditton, <laughs> who was hoping to row the Pacific this season, actually, and I've not heard, given the latest sort of situation, what's, what's going on. But to me, it felt really important that she was sold on to another rower. Mm. I wasn't going to be using her. Um, and then Gulliver, <laughs> Gulliver reappeared in 2018, um, about this time of year, I think it was March. And it was so curious, so curious. I was sitting on Hampstead Heath um, with my therapist, actually. And I was sitting beneath a tree. And I said, my boat's over there. I can see my boat. My boat's just appeared to me. And I was sort of transfixed with this vision of my boat. And then it was time to leave, and I was quite sort of flustered by that. And she said, well, let's just tie him up and tell him that we'll be back next week. So I did. And I thought, God, that's, that's a really strong experience to have. I'm, I'm interested by why that's come up now. And um, I walked off. I was ironically going to Tower Bridge to HMS President to give a talk to the Naval Cadets. And on my way there, I got a message from Lucy saying, look who's just turned up. And it was a a Facebook message from somebody in the Philippines with a picture of Gulliver. Wow. Yeah, it just floored me. It just floored me. And um, I very quickly was kind of, I suppose, back in the boat. It re-triggered 
mm-hmm. that re-triggered everything. And um, I had a few really difficult, difficult months trying to kind of, yeah, move through that and reach a place of sort of yeah peace again. And, and actually, it was quite a been quite a big journey since of realizing that what happened on the Pacific was kind of layered up with other losses and traumas and, and things as well that have all all had their time and space and sort of healing in different ways now. Um, but it just it's so extraordinary to me that that Gulliver arrived in the Philippines. That's really cool and special. Um, and to think of all the things that he's seen and what animals must have landed on him in that time and to then come to a place of letting go actually of kind of knowing okay I know how that part of the story ended and that's all I know and that's all I will know because it was so difficult to communicate with the people who got in touch to tell us that they'd found him Hmm. Um, people didn't reply to stuff other people said they were involved and I sort of just realized actually that I had to yeah I had to let go and accept that Gulliver was a part of their lives now, and I'm sure and I hope that he is being useful and valued um, in different ways. That's, and yeah, finding some peace with that. Yeah. Hmm. Finding peace. You had one final, or maybe two shorter legs back in the UK to to finish the geographical journey, at least. Um, the cycle from Falmouth up to Oxford, and then into the kayak once more to head down the Thames and through Tower Tower Bridge. How how did that final leg compare to the rest of it? You had I'm guessing you had company the whole way? I did have company the whole way. Um, and it was it was really important for me that we finished the journey in the way that I'd hoped and, and sort of envisaged. Some people said, are you going to go back and have another go on the Atlantic? And I I knew even before setting out on the Atlantic, actually, I'd said to myself, well, if anything happens at that stage, I'm not going to go back and have another go. This is the end of this journey. And that felt really easy to do. It's, it's something that I don't think my 24 or 25-year-old self would have done. Um, so that's good that evolution has happened. <laughs> um, the, the final days of the journey from... Cornwall up through Oxford to London felt so special, so special to be surrounded by people I loved and um, kind of humbled too that people who I didn't know would come out and cheer me on or come and join me for a bit of the bike and um, come and uh, meet me on the river for a paddle. It it felt really special and, and definitely like this kind of growing energy towards the finish, a crescendo that actually started to become quite daunting in a way, um, but kind of feeling as though it was this force that I didn't have any option to to change, I just had to roll with it. Um, and a, a kind of a sense almost of, yeah, of needing it to be a certain way in, in, in some respect of sort of going, well, you're not going to say the most eloquent things, just be with it just let all those feelings be there and and keep on going because that was 
hard to the fact I was tired um, and being around people at times was difficult. I mean, it's draining at the best of times, but um, I think the added sort of pressure of everything, the fact it changed so quickly, so we're suddenly sort of making these new plans and, and there's press that wanted to speak and my project manager wanted to know what's going on. All of that made for um, me at times just wanting solitude. I just wanted some peace and quiet. <laughs> <sighs> but it was it was wonderful. I, I'm grinning right now as I think about it. And it was especially wonderful to A, be sharing it with people, but to be recognizing the places that I was traveling through. I remember as I came um, quite locally to where we live now, sort of coming through South Oxfordshire on the bike, and seeing Didcot Power Station, the, ma the, the towers of Didcot Power Station. And I cried because I thought, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> I live just down the road. Um, and, and then we, we swung by my old Oxford College, St. Hughes, um, and that felt really special. Um, so it was, yeah, it was hugely um, grin-making hmm. to, to do those miles with, with people I loved. And, and knew people that I didn't know, but I felt grateful to you. And, and then all of a sudden, it was uh, November the 3rd, and, and I was due underneath Tower Bridge. Um, I remember that morning was kind of misty and um, a bit flat grey, but it felt peaceful. The river felt peaceful. London was mostly asleep at that point, as I think there were three three of us paddling off, maybe four. And then we, we got further down the Thames <laughs> and picked up <laughs> a lot of other kayakers. A mixture of kayakers from Rutland Canoe Club, where I'd first learnt to paddle when I was a teenager, and um, local Chelsea Chelsea Kayak Club, and another one that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> um, but I was kind of flanked down the river by a flotilla of boats. And then more boats joined. We had a press boat, and there was a fire boat, and there was the RNLI, and the Navy boat, and just suddenly all of these people, and London, and it's full, and here we are under the bridge, and tears, <laughs> and grins, and tears again, and grins again, and trying to take it all in. It was overwhelming. And still trying not to tip over? I was more confident that I wouldn't tip over, but uh, yeah, that's always top of the list, isn't it? You don't want to make a tip yourself. <laughs> I had my fingers crossed. That, uh, that, that I'd fall in or that you, I wouldn't? No, that you wouldn't, <laughs> obviously. That, 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 that final day, um, a, a, a few of us slept over at Anna McNuff's house mm -hmm. and then up nice and early. And that final day, just the way that crowd grew from those those three or four people who were there when you put into the water. And I was I was alongside the Thames, riding my bike and getting film of you through the trees the, all day mm. long. And then slowly more and more. And it was just uh, my, my heart swelled for you that day. Uh, it was and then hundreds maybe perhaps thousands across uh tower bridge uh it, it was just incredible to see the support and love that people had for you 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 touched so many people on your journey your storytelling for four and a half years even during the gaps was was incredible for so many and to to be there to see you go through under the bridge and then and then settle onto land for the final time 
I, I, I was crying for hours. How, how did you feel? Well, can you explain the emotions of, of finally getting out of Hercules? Sorry, Nelson. Um, yeah, it was just full, 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 full. I um, flipped between tears and grins and not being able to say anything, wanting to hug people and wanting to disappear into my own sort of solitude somewhere up the river, quiet somewhere. Because at times it felt too much. It felt like I might just burst. I couldn't didn't know what to do or how to do it um, and, and sort of swinging between that and then going no just just be with it just grin like a Cheshire cat that is what this moment is <laughs> if it's grinning if it's tears just let it be um, coming up out of out of the boat um, I could just hear this sort of swell of cheers and um, yeah cheering and, and squealing and my mum was blowing on a big whistle and there's a um there was a, a gospel choir singing which was just lovely the kids cheering and I, I ran up the the gangway and was just met by a wall of photographers and big lenses going click, 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 click. so it felt so good just to sink my arms around Lucy and sort of bury myself into her neck um and almost not want to let go of her but um it felt just just so huge such a relief to be there such gratitude to be there um just belief <laughs> <laughs> just belief that we finally we finally got home finally made it um and i remember not really being able to say anything um some, you know, the, the cameras wanted me to say something. Everyone's quiet, waiting to listen to what I've got to say. And I just felt like I didn't really have words. Um, but then someone handed me the champagne and, and that just felt huge to, hmm. you know, put my finger over the end and spray it everywhere. <laughs> I could do that. The words weren't needed there. And I, I just, um, I remember as I was sort of ushered from okay, come and see the Navy guys here, uh, to, to this, to that, just catching the eye of different people that I loved that I hadn't seen for a couple of years. Or, or maybe they'd grab me by the hand and I'd just give it a squeeze and, and just feel so connected. And one of my favorite, favorite moments was when I went to see the Navy guys who were standing on parade and, and to sort of say hello and, and thank you. And as I did that, the gospel choir was singing One Day Like This by Elbow. Hmm. And I remember closing my eyes and just sort of grinning and smiling to the music and swaying with it because that's, that's such a favorite song of mine. And they, they, sung me, um, they sung me out with that on the day that I left. So it kind of felt like I'd come full circle. Um, so much had changed. So much was the same as well, and um, here were many of the people that had sent me off on on that April day those years before. So it was just such a magic, full, kind of heart bursty, grin making, such that your muscles and your face don't want to work anymore because they grin so much. <laughs> kind of day. It was 
It was sublime. It was sublime. What's happened since? How how do you view your body now? Now it's mm. been through all of these incredible challenges and now now settle, settled at home with Lucy. What has happened since? Um, a lot has happened since. <laughs> I feel like a lot has happened since. I mean, it's, it's nearly five years ago that I finished. It's four and a half years. And it's interesting. I remember um, Al Humphreys saying at some point that he felt if you go away on a big trip, you should leave the same amount of time that you're away before writing a book or making a film. Mm. You know, the idea that you need to let it stew. And I think a version of that has felt the same for me as I've come to realise that it's taken four and a half years to reach a level of health that I had before starting out. I'm probably in better health than I was before starting out, actually. But that it takes that long. I feel like it's taken four and a half years to come home. Um, in terms of of settling. I mean, you said I've settled, and I often resist that word when people say, so are you going to settle down? Mm. Because it, it feels like it's a restrictive word. But actually, I look at a lot of the things that I hold so dearly right now, and it is things like um, feeling connected to a place, and we've got donkeys. And I'm married to Lucy, who's a farmer, so we're very connected to this land around here right now. Uh, to having a garden and, and putting roots down, to feeling a part of a local community, you know, I can actually meet up with people and um, take part in things together. Um, a lot of my friends are scattered about the globe, so um, I sort of came to realise the last couple of years that that part of community. Um, contact was yeah was really key and, and sort of changing part of me I think from the years where I I've considered myself more of a lone wolf and and certainly around my um, sort of mental health a, a lot of the ways that I pushed those challenges down and didn't share them I've actually realized the, the power and the need to to share those darker darker common to everyone um, and with my physical health and that's that's been a journey and a half since as well um, my allergies are much better than they were but they're still there I'm still working to get off medication and bring my immune system back into a balance that is less reactive and a huge part of that last year was um, having abdominal surgery I had a, a fibroid of big chunky fibroid in my uterus um, that was causing all sorts of problems um, and my hair was falling out I skinhead for six months of last year after I shaved it all off um, and, and sort of healing through that after that operation and um, really just coming to understand more about what I was putting into my body um, and how that was causing problems. Um, I, I, I knew that I was allergic to certain foods, but I'd still eat them, kind of going, oh, but I'm just having a little bit, just having a little bit. And realizing, no, you idiot, 
<laughs> you're allergic to it. That's making you sick. Stop it. Um, and and I've had this whole journey the last couple of years around, yeah, around my mental health and, and sort of questioning all those big things that we question when we kind of go into, I suppose, the existential stuff, like who am I and what's it mean and um, who am I connected to and what's important and really kind of letting go of, I think, um, past hurts and traumas and, and difficulties as I've come to understand more about the effects of trauma on the body. Um, and I suppose it feels like this great sort of softening somehow, um, being kinder to myself and understanding more about, yeah, where some of the things came from before and letting go of them. Um, yeah, just learning a different way of being. I think that's what it is. And there's definitely more being than doing. Um, <laughs> there's not the same need to push, push, push all the time now. There's an actual understanding. It felt like a revelation last year when, when I realized what rest means. Somebody said to me as I was recovering from operation and my wound got infected. So, so mechanically the wound... Um, or the, the procedures like a c-section i literally my tummy sort of ripped open hip to hip um, and this tumor hefted out and, and chucked away but in in resting i was forced into stillness and i came to realize that i actually had no idea how to rest <laughs> what i thought was resting before was not you can't do stuff when you're resting you have to do nothing um and it took it took hanging out with horses actually to realize that you can rest whenever like all the time is a good time to rest <laughs> that you don't need to be exhausted I mean, who knew that you don't need to be exhausted to have a rest and so now i feel like i've become a bit of a resting evangelist and i love finding moments where i can rest i realize that in walking the foot that's not um that's not sort of moving you along that's that can be resting you can rest for tiny little moments just the intention to pause and rest um, can, can be powerful. It feels like all of these experiences have brought you not, not just to the place where you are, but to an apt title for the film released hmm. not long ago about London to London. Uh, if people have been listening to this and they, and they want some visual accompaniment to your story uh home seems to be the the best solution where can people watch watch the film about your journey so given the context of things right now um got all <laughs> cinema and festival showings on hold but um you can watch it on vimeo so it's on vimeo on demand uh if you just type in sarah uten home you'll come up with it um, it's available all around the world except at the moment for Australia and New Zealand but perhaps by the time you get to listen to this it'll be available there too that's certainly planned for the coming weeks amazing I'll, I'll, I'll put the link to the film on Vimeo in the show notes and you also wrote a book about the journey called Dare to Do how's that gone? yeah the book and the story uh, sorry the book and the film I think are interesting 
kind of comparisons and companions, I suppose. I signed the deal for the book on the Atlantic Ocean, and the publisher said, we want the manuscript three months after you come home. <laughs> See, you'd laugh. At the time, I didn't think that that was a problem. I just thought, yeah, sure. You think I can do it? I can do it. That was the mindset I had back then. Like, how am I going to write a four and a half year book in three months when I've just finished it and have to somehow land and get back to life? So, I mean, that that didn't happen. It took six months for me to finish because it coincided with me having a breakdown. Um, and it, I think the the story of the book, sorry, the story I tell in the book is uh, very raw and. At times, probably a bit detached as well, um, in as much as there's more processing that's happened since. And so with the film, I mean, it's a different genre, obviously, of, of using stuff that's shot at the time, and, and there's an editor that's not me who's making decisions about things, and um, you know, we've got creative, um, we were quite creative about our portrayal of certain sequences of the film. Um, so they're, they're very different in the way that they're told, but I think also there's, there's something that comes in the film that isn't there in the book, and that's just the, the time after the processing and the, the perspective that has come with that. So, um, yeah, the book's called Dare to Do, and I don't know, I'm pondering with the idea. I don't know if it's just too much of versions of the same story, but I'm pondering with the idea of, of almost something along the lines of Dare to, daring to be and, and actually hmm. writing about what's come since in my kind of coming to coming to know myself more and, and to really land after the journey like really coming home hmm. after the journey coming home to myself um, but for now that's that's not a thing it's just a pondering well if it comes to be then you have one reader in the bank already Hey, thanks, Davey. <laughs> oh, I would love to read that book. I think it's mm. it's such a great idea. But, of course, zero pressure. Let's rest first, shall we? Yeah, and I definitely won't be turning it around in, uh, well, I was going to say three months actually now feels like a really nice time to write a book. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we'll see what happens. I've, there's definitely less pressure and more kind of openness to the idea of things evolving these days. Sarah Uten. It has been such a pleasure listening to all of your stories. Thank you so much for, for being so honest and open, candid, adventurous, uh, inspiring, and and so many other words. You, I think your journey, if I'm right in saying, was uh, declared one of the, if not the most impressive is are these the, the wrong words to be using how did someone uh talk about london to london people have said some really nice things about the journey and that's that's cool that's the, enough. um i think the coolest thing for me though the most special thing is um when people tell me how my story has kind of connected with them how it's resonated with them so with our film home We've won a number of awards, it's eight or nine or something like that, um, which is really special to be recognized in that way. But the thing that's most special for me, most humbling, that I kind of hold most dear, I suppose, is when people have written and told me how 
watching the film has made them feel less alone. Less alone in their struggles, it's helped them feel braver for something they're going through. Um, it's helped somehow validate their experience by kind of going, okay, I'm not the only one who's had a tough time. I'm not the only one who's been seeking something or been lost or struggled. And that was really a hope and an aim for making the film. Um, I think my my sort of own personal journey with my mental health has has been all the more difficult because I didn't have that openness around me or I didn't feel that I had access to stories that um, shared their vulnerabilities like that. And I feel that I've been helped by hearing other people talk about how difficult things have been or how they found a way through for the fact I felt less alone. And, and so I felt particularly in our sort of genre of adventure storytelling where there can be a lot of hyperbole and chest beating and um, a lot of focus on things that go well and are successful. I just felt, well, actually, I need to show this very real, very raw, very honest side of, of how I've struggled as well and got through it. But um, that for me is the most special bit is that people have felt yeah felt less alone felt braver and I guess the other side of that too is that they've kind of felt excited or empowered to go and take on a challenge to go and get their gal out of the bag and have a go <laughs> the world is a richer place for your story I have one more question for you finish this sentence the mm. most important thing in life is most important thing in life is health. <laughs> just one word. Just like that? <laughs> That's it. That's the finish. I just, I just fist pumped. <laughs> Thanks again for listening in to not only that epic interview with Sarah Uton, but to sticking with me throughout this entire first season of Self Propelled. 2020 has been a roller coaster, and I've learned a lot from this series of podcasts. I started off with really good intentions. I know I can improve on releasing episodes more consistently, especially, and hope you accept my apologies and reasons for the sometimes incredible spacing between different episodes. Since I started this podcast back in March, I've been quite nomadic. I've lived out of nine different places, uh, one of them being a double-decker bus where it's been quite difficult to pad out the sound, as you can imagine. So keeping sound quality and regularity of interviews in rhythm has been the biggest challenge for this podcast's first season, to say the least. I'm glad to say, though, that all going well by the end of 2020, my wife Ems and I will have moved into a brand new base camp where I'll eagerly be setting up an office and recording studio to give this podcast and my work in general a new lease of life. You can find out more about this new project by searching for at Big Sky Oasis on Instagram and Facebook. And in the meantime, I'm always grateful for the positive reviews and messages I've received from you during this first drawn out season. We'll be back soon with a new series of interviews. And in the meantime, I wish you the best. And as always, if there's ever anything I can do to help as you plan your next adventure, please do drop me a line.